uh, for the, uh, we'll pray and read some scripture here in just a moment, but for the Easter message this year, I'm taking a little bit different angle, so I want to just preface it a bit. And you fifth regulars, you, you who know me, know that I came to faith later in life, and I, I have this built-in kind of urge on Easter Sunday to make the case for the resurrection every year because uh, I think that's built in because it was such an important thing for me personally because not growing up in the church, I, I didn't understand that Christians actually believed this. I, I thought it was a kind of religious myth of a story uh, that, that people told. I didn't understand that people out there somewhere believed that an actual physical bodily resurrection from the dead had happened. So when, as an adult, a young adult, just out of college, I came to understand that, that was huge. That changed, changed everything for me. So that, that's my natural bent, is to, is to go that direction, uh, to talk about the evidence for the resurrection or the, the idea that the bodily resurrection of Jesus explains history better, I think, than all other possible explanations. But... I'm kind of going down that road already, right? And we're not going to do that today. We as a church, I as a person, I need you to know this. I believe that happened. We as a church believe that that happened and that that historical event is the linchpin of history. And it's the most important thing, not just for Christians, but for everybody everywhere, because we believe its claim is historical, not just religious or metaphorical or something like that. So we live in a world where a resurrection has happened, And for us gathered here today, I want to think about what that means for us as followers of Jesus and what that means for the justice God is bringing to the world. As a church, we spent the last six weeks looking at the book of Amos and and thinking about biblical justice. So today, I want to make the link between resurrection and justice. See, one way to think about the resurrection of Jesus is that it was the first installment of God's kingdom coming to earth. And the Bible speaks of a time when God's kingdom will have fully come, when there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And the scripture also explains that that will be a kingdom where justice will reign, where justice will rule. So for Easter this year, let's make that connection and think about our part in it as followers of Jesus. So I'll pray for us, and then we'll hear the scripture. Let's pray. God, we approach you today with great thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord that you have given us the ability to offer to you something you desire, our worship. And we do that fully today. We, we release our hands and give ourselves to you, give our minds and hearts and souls and bodies to you. God, uh, thank you for what you've done for us in Jesus. We believe that you're alive. We believe you're good. Pour out your spirit on us now, God, as we open the scripture. Help us hear you. Help us receive what you have for us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Our first scripture today comes from Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. 
He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Our second scripture comes from 2 Peter 3, verse 13. But God has promised us a new heaven and a new earth where justice will rule. We are really looking forward to that. Oh, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You got caught up in the, we're really looking forward to that. (laughs) And we are, and we are. Well, as, as we all know, we're, we're still right in the midst of it. You know, on May 25th, George Floyd died uh, under a Minneapolis police officer, and the trial is ongoing now. Um, prior to that, multiple cases of black people being killed in our country, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and many others. Um, the peaceful protests that followed the death of George Floyd, some claim numbered up to 15 million. Not the riots now, I'm talking about the peaceful protests that were geared towards social change. Uh, But commentators have said that the number of people in our country who participated in those peaceful protests make them the largest gatherings of their kind in our country's history by far. There's There's something big going on. Right, obviously, there have been some intense conversations around race over the last year, and one observer uh, commented this, it was immediately clear that we have no common vocabulary by which to talk about race. Instead, many speakers of sharply different views angrily assert their positions to the world and then denounce and dismiss one another. There's racial tension. We feel that right now. We felt that this year. Relationships between races are broken in our country. Before the racial conversation took center stage, it was the Me Too movement. You remember that? This unveiling of the way powerful men misused their power toward women, leveraging power for sexual advantage, all with tremendous impropriety. It's just really bad, right? in some cases. There's, there's much more to say here, but for today's purpose, the point is that there's tension in relationship between the sexes. There's, there's impropriety and brokenness and misuse of power and, and violence at times. It's brokenness. There's also tension between economic classes, socioeconomic classes. You know, no matter your political stripe, it seems most political observers agree Uh, that then-candidate Trump, when campaigning for the presidency, tapped into this tension between economic classes, this anger of the have-nots toward the haves. And that's what generated these stories of which we heard, the 60-year-old auto worker in Detroit who his entire life had voted straight-ticket Democrat, but in 2016 chose a Republican presidential candidate. there's, There's tension, there's brokenness between economic classes. And and if you just zoom out for a second, just looking at our country in particular, uh, isn't it obvious? I mean, there is unrest. 
There is dissatisfaction in the way social relationships are going in general between races and, and sexes and classes. And I argue that it's really obvious. All you have to do is take a couple minutes to look around or turn on the news and watch for just five minutes. Right? It's there. And forget all the fancy philosophical arguments. It's just not working. It's broken. I mean, the way we're doing relationships as a society is not working. So, does the resurrection of Jesus have something to say to that? Yes. Yes, it does. There is a direct link between the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus and the justice God intends for the world, the kind of world God is remaking. See, the resurrection of Jesus was the first installment of the kingdom of God, which is coming to earth. And that, that passage we read from Revelation describes that kingdom. You know, that time where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has, has gone and, and all things have been made new. And Jesus himself said, I am making everything new. Remember in the scripture, there's an exclamation point there. I am making everything new. See, beyond that, the resurrection of Jesus proves that God's kingdom has begun on earth. I don't know what your story is of grappling with this claim of the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. But I came to a point as a person not being raised in church where I understood very clearly that if that actually happened, it's pretty obvious that only God can do that because none of us can bring somebody back from the dead. And if God did that, then in this world, there has been a demonstration of power that proves that God is real and that God loves people and that the whole Christian story is actually true, that God's about a huge project to call everybody home. Ali Ali income free, though it wasn't free. He paid a tremendous price, but he's calling home everyone everywhere. So remember that verse we read from 2 Peter today too. God has promised that in his kingdom, justice will rule. And we are all looking forward to that. So with the beginning of God's kingdom on earth, so has begun the rule of God's justice on earth, where all things are right. That's what the, the Hebrew word shalom means. We, we translate it as peace, and we often think of it as just absence of conflict. But shalom actually means that place and time where there is no brokenness in relationship, where nothing is sideways anymore. Everything has been healed. That's what we're all looking forward to. Tim Keller put it this way, the resurrection means that the liberating, repairing power of God is here now through the risen Christ and his presence in our lives through the Holy Spirit. The liberating, repairing power of God is here now through the risen Christ and through his presence in our lives by the Holy Spirit. That liberating, repairing power of God has inaugurated a new creation that has begun right here, right now. If you're a follower of Jesus, you felt it in yourself a little bit. You know you're still broken, but you know God is doing, has done something and, and is doing something. God is doing something in the world. And, and says the Bible, he's creating one new humanity, united in Christ, no longer divided by worldly categories. 
And followers of Jesus have a part to play in that. Now, my memory is suspect at times, but as I remember it, Dave Bast and I, you can correct me later, Dave, if I'm wrong, were walking in an airport on our way to Turkey for a conference with Words of Hope. And unprompted, Dave said in his inimitable style, John, do you know what the world's greatest problem is? My mind started reeling. Bad airplane food? No, no, okay, that's not it. Sin? Uh, The devil? Evil? Evil. Yeah, that's good. I'm going with evil. But what did you have in mind? One word answer. Tribalism. (laughs) That was my reaction internally. Tribalism? Isn't bad airplane food worse than that? I mean, aren't there things worse than tribalism? We talked about it, and that, that idea stuck with me. I had never described it in that way before. There's something broken in, in our nature, in our humanity, that wants to create tribes, an us and a them, right? Because that's what tribalism is. My tribe is us, and that other tribe is them. I look out for me and mine, and they can fend for themselves. And in fact, I might go over there and conquer them to take some of their stuff for me and mine. There's a whole sociological framework built around this. It's called the practice of othering. Do you know this word? Othering, the process whereby an individual or groups of people attribute negative characteristics to other individuals or groups of people that set them apart as representing that which is opposite to them. It's a mouthful, but you get the idea, right? Attributing negative attributes to another person or group to make a them out of those folks and to set them over and against us, right? Othering. It's an exercise in defining ourselves over and against someone else or some other group. And in our brokenness, we create a them group and an us group, and the them are the others. They're not like us because they're other. Don't miss the struggle for identity here. It is basic human struggle. As we create a them, What's really going on is that we're grappling for identity, is that we don't know who we are. We're not solid enough in our own identity, so we got to create a them so we can say, well, at least we're not that. And we think of those people over there as not like us. And in so doing, we somehow shore up our broken sense of identity. See, in our brokenness, we try to identify who we are by stating who we're not. And you see this everywhere. I mean everywhere in our world. I I, I contend it has completely taken over our national politics. My my dad is a a scientist by training. He loves to read. He's an odd duck. He stays up really late at night. He'll be up till two or three in the morning (laughs) reading scientific journals. He has all these science magazines. And he he shared an article with me from Science Magazine titled, Political sectarianism in America, a poisonous cocktail of othering, aversion, and moralization. A little little light reading for 2 a.m., right? Um, This one line was worth the read. When politics becomes an identity-based struggle against depraved opponents, attributing negative attributes to the other, when ideals and policies matter less than 
then, that's supposed to be than, dominating foes, government becomes dysfunctional. Huh, you think? Unfortunately, I've seen this in the church too. You know, ever since uh, becoming a pastor, I've been in some way involved in planting churches or the church planting efforts of a classis or a, or a denomination. And on several occasions, I've seen a church that was planted out of another church kind of in anger. An angry group left and started a, a new church, you know? And the, the, new, the new church, I shouldn't say that, it was, it was really a church, who am I to judge? But they, they defined themselves primarily as not that, right? Like at least we're not like those people. And I, I tell you, every single time I've encountered that, the, the foundation, the foundational identity was angry. And all of, the, all of them that I have seen, I, th- I think of a couple exceptions, so not all. Most of them that I've seen, churches planted in that, in that way plateau early and die young because their identity is misfounded. Right? In our brokenness, we try to identify who we are by stating who we're not. But the resurrection of Jesus means that we can know who we are to be in Christ, to be adopted into the family of God by divine decree. It puts you in a place of tremendous security. We're children of God, loved by God, uh, with whom God is pleased, says the scripture. If we're in Christ, not because of what we've done, but because of what God has done for us in Christ, we can rest in our identity. In, in his wonderful book, Destroyer of the Gods, an author named Larry Hurtado uh, teases out the distinctiveness of the early church. What made it distinct from the world around it? And one of the ways the early church was distinct was that it was the, the first ever multi-ethnic, multicultural, multiracial spiritual community. At least as far as he could tell, in the history of the world. The first group that breached those boundaries of tribalism, those social boundary markers that creates a them and an us. And the only way that early community was able to do that was because of the resurrection of Jesus, was because God provided definitively in this world an identity marker much more important than race or ethnicity or gender or culture. We live in a world where a resurrection has happened. And our identity is founded in that. See, that, that, that struggle to grapple with that and to really get that into our minds as Christians was very prevalent in the early church. You can see it in, in the epistles. Uh, the book of Galatians is almost entirely about this. And it appears in Ephesians as well and in other places. And it, it manifested itself in the early church in the struggle to get Jews and Gentiles to live together as equals in the church. I mean, Jewish people, and then Gentiles refers to everybody else, right? All all the other ethnicities and cultures and all that. But it was basically, how how do we become a multi-ethnic, multicultural body? Look look at what Paul wrote in Ephesians. Back to our, our peace today, right? For Jesus himself is our peace, who has made the two groups, meaning Jews and Gentiles, everybody else, all ethnicities, all cultures, has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself 
One new humanity out of the two. One new humanity. No more sociological boundary markers for Christians. Thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. You can see, it's the appeal to the resurrection. It's the appeal to our faith in the risen Christ that unites us beyond these distinctions that the world thinks are important. The resurrection of Jesus means that we no longer need to think us and them in the church because we've been rescued from that. We've been rescued from that tribalism and that that othering. And we know that God wants to create in Christ one new humanity. And that includes everybody who's not here yet. God wants to bring everybody in. All races, all economic classes, both sexes. Look, the Bible addresses those three things the tensions I mentioned at the outset of the sermon directly. Look at this in Galatians. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. The cultural ethnic difference, gone. Neither slave nor free. Economic status, that's what that meant in the ancient world. Nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ all children of God through faith in the risen Jesus. Identity secure. A different identity. That was the chapter of Hurtado's book about the first multi-ethnic community. A different identity. You know, Paul's not saying that these distinctions don't matter. He's not saying that a person shouldn't be proud of their culture or ethnicity or skin color. He's not saying that there's no distinction between male and female. All he's saying is that these distinctions no longer define believers primarily. The primary thing is that we know Jesus and are found in Christ. Now, what's our part in this as Christians? Remember Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Jesus is making everything new, including you and me, if we will let him. And that new heaven and new earth, in that new heaven and new earth, everything will will be as it is intended. That verse from 2 Peter again. God has promised us a new heaven and new earth where justice will rule. Shalom, all things made right. No tension in these social relationships. The resurrection of Jesus is the first installment of the kingdom of God. And we have a part to play in ushering in that kingdom. Look look at Galatians now. This was Paul's conclusion after grappling with the tensions between Jew and Gentile, the ethnic cultural tensions. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, that's code for Jew and Gentile, means anything. What counts is the new creation. The new people we've been made in Christ. That means in the church, all the human categories we use to make distinctions among people really don't matter. What counts is the new thing God is doing, the new creation. One commentator put it this way, this new creation is, first of all, a gift, but it brings with it a task. The new creation brings its task with it to the church, that is. Christians have a role to play. We're not to live by worldly categories, but by biblical categories, by by the way of Jesus. See, the resurrection of Jesus means that we are to be kingdom people both praying in and working for 
God's kingdom on earth, which is marked by justice. Praying in, just think of the Lord's prayer for a moment. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus said, when you pray, lead with this. Like we pray that God's kingdom would come here now on earth as in heaven. And, and, and the working, as we talked about in the Amos series, begins with us, right? We can't point out there first. You gotta point here first. Remove the log from your own eye before you comment on the speck in your brothers or sisters, right? Look at this from Ephesians. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. You know, I, I don't think the Apostle Paul would have written this if that putting off of the old and putting on of the new happened automatically. It seems to me there's something we have to do here and keep on doing. I infer from this passage that it's possible to be a believing follower of Jesus and not put off your old self and to cling to your old identity and all the broken ways that we try to prop it up. But when we do that, we find ourselves at odds with the kingdom that has already arrived in Jesus, the kingdom that is currently unfolding through the power of God in this world. Uh, Tim Keller in this book, I, I got his previous quote I shared today from that, but he, he shared a poignant example I thought was so powerful of putting off the old self and putting on the new self and the implications of that for everyday justice. Just, just listen to what he, what he writes. What if I, an older white male, find myself listening to a young black sister in Christ who's telling me about the difficulty of her life in a white-dominated society? How shall I respond? There's an instinct within me to respond the way my parents and grandparents and most of the people I grew up around would have responded. They would be polite and pleasant outwardly and say nothing negative, but inwardly they would dismiss her concerns. They would say, sure, there's still prejudice out there, but nothing like it was in the past. It's a free country, and if you work hard, you'll prosper, and you will be fine. So I could just smile and hope the uncomfortable conversation will be over soon. Or I can remember that my old self, because of its idolatries, tends to be self-justifying and blind to many of the very things she's telling me. And I can remember my new self, that I'm a Christian first and a white man second, and that I must treat this sister in Christ as an equal and as a person through whom God is speaking to me. That doesn't mean I can't use my critical faculties to discuss and even debate, but even an imperfectly, partially assumed new Christian self rooted in Christ's love and grace enables a person to be less defensive and quick to repent. It produces an openness and humility that makes such conversational and learning possible. With all the shouting and anger so prevalent around these issues, 
I don't know of a better way forward than for millions of Christians to put on their new selves and to start listening. See, the resurrection of Jesus means, among many other things, that Christians are to model kingdom relationships. We can't do that if we're wearing our old self. We won't do that if we're wearing our old self. We're we're to be a community of changed relationships because of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, the resurrection is the first installment of God's kingdom to come. That will be a kingdom of justice. Through the resurrection and all that God has done for us in Jesus, we're rescued from our tribalism, our, our natural them and us bit, from that broken need to think of others as different from us and less like us and lesser than us. And we have a, a role to play in deploying the resurrection in living as kingdom people, people of light. You know, Jesus desires to create one new humanity out of all the divisions, all the tribes, all the divisions the world thinks important. Our role in deploying the resurrection in everyday life is to put on the new self after putting off the old self. Friends, we live in a world where a resurrection has happened. That makes all the difference for us, not just way out there sometime. Right now, this instant, in this moment, it makes all the difference. If, if you happen to be a guest with us this morning, I, I want to invite you back for our upcoming series. I, I, I thought it would be good after Easter to uh, think about what a faith lived out on the ground really looks like. That's what the book of James is about. So we'll be starting a new series next week called Faith That Works. It's all about what a Christian life lived out on the ground looks like. What, what would your life look like if you really believe this and seek to live it out by the power of the Holy Spirit? So that's where we're going for the next few weeks. And if you're, if you're here for the first time, we'd love for you to join us in that. Friends, we live in a world where a resurrection has happened. And for us, that makes all the difference. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.